thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Reel. Today we are again joined by naturopath Jad Patrick and we have a fascinating topic to discuss today. Jad and I are going to talk all things techniques to change your brain, improve peak performance and move from mental illness to mental wellness. Hi again, Jad. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me on the show again. It's a pleasure to be here. Really looking forward to this topic. So let's dive straight in today. I'd love you to start with just some background, I guess, some context on why is mental illness and then wellness so important for, for everyone, but also athletes to look after? Uh, I guess it's important for everyone in the sense that no one's immune to mental health problems. We'll all go through times in life where we struggle with things like anxiety and a bit of depression and whatnot. And there's a potential there for that to turn into something more serious where it becomes like a mental health issue as opposed to just, you know, part of life's ups and downs. And I think it's particularly important for athletes because things like focus, clarity, um, being able to set goals, self-care and self-awareness are critical components of athletic ability as well. And mental illness can affect all of those things and be affected by all those things. So I think, you know, apart from um, it being important for everyone to look after their mental health, just as it is important to look after their physical health, it can be particularly important for, for athletes as well because um, mental focus and, and mental ability is, is a big part of um, um you know, athletic ability as well. Um, additionally, I think that uh, some of the risk factors for mental illness, like chronic stress um, and certain past personality traits like perfectionism, some of those things can be exacerbated by, um, uh, you know, exercise in some ways. We know that exercise is really great for stress management, but it can also be a, a problem too for mental health if we're overtraining, um, if we're doing really crazy sort of dieting and stuff, and that can put a big stress on the body, which in turn also increases our risk of things like um, anxiety and depression and, and even other more serious mental health conditions. Yeah, I'm really glad, glad that you raised that because I think there's certainly a stigma around mental illness and I, I do think that some people run the assumption that they're immune to it or perhaps when they start to experience some challenges that they're too shy or embarrassed to talk about it. So, you know, sometimes it's actually really helpful to look at it from a purely selfish way. You know, you want to improve your mental wellness to help with performance, then great, you know, do it for that reason and there'll be so many positive flow-on effects of that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, self-care is such an important strategy for, you know, for athletes to consider, you know, people consider their, you know, their sleep and their hydration and their nutrition and looking after your mental health is just, if not more important, because if that starts to collapse, then all of your other beneficial habits start going out the window and um, that can lead into, you know, real serious kind of problems. And I think, yeah, you raised the point of stigma, which is it's still unfortunately there. I think we've come a long way especially in Australia in, in people having at least an open conversation about mental illness in the community. But I think when you're in the midst of experiencing mental illness, you can feel very isolated and alone. And it's important to know that there is a lot of support out there, but it does take a bit of bravery in reaching out to friends and family and to professionals and, um, and getting the support you need if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by life. And to be gentle with yourself and acknowledge that that, that happens. It's part of life sometimes to feel a bit overwhelmed and, and um, be mentally unwell, just like sometimes you get colds and flu and you push yourself too hard. Sometimes you'll end up with, you know, anxiety and depression and other conditions flaring up. So I think it's important we, we treat it just like a physical illness. When it, when it comes up, it's a time to take a step step back, um, look at a bit of rest and relaxation and talk to some professionals about how you can better manage your, your mental health. Yeah, so important, such an integral part of health. So what I've loved lately and particularly I think in 2016, you'll agree there's been this amazing boom in the research in regards to nutrition and mental health. So let's yes. explore that and chat to me about obviously what the research has found, but the factors associated with um, declining mental health and how food affects our brain. Absolutely. <clears throat> You're right. It's been a very exciting time. In fact, at the end of last year, I was lucky enough to go to a, a presentation, a, a medical presentation. I was sort of helping out with the stall and got to sit in on a number of the talks. And there was a number of very high-profile researchers who were presenting information on the impact not only of the link between diet and mental health, but we now have actually some studies showing that diet as an intervention can improve mental health. But I thought I'd talk a little bit first about you know, dietary factors that are maybe a risk for mental health problems. So uh, originally there were some studies that found people who have cardiovascular disease and diabetes also have correspondingly high rates of depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders, and they tend to cluster together. And as we know, both of those conditions have a strong dietary kind of component. Um, so that's led researchers to have a look in that direction. You know, maybe, you know, our nutrition might have an impact on our mental health. For those into nutrition, like, you know, naturopaths like myself, nutritionists, it's almost a no-brainer, but yeah. from such perspective, you know, there's a lot of variables there that need to be um, pulled apart. So one of the things that originally was thought was maybe when people get poor mental health, they start eating more poorly. They engage in behaviours that are less um, self-care related. You know, they don't have the, if they're suffering from depression. They might be too tired to go out and shop for fresh food and prepare meals themselves. If their anxiety, if you know anxiety is really bad, they might be too scared to leave the house and whatnot. So that could have confounded, you know, these links between poor diet and poor mental health. But thankfully, researchers have, you know, used the magical power of statistics and, and you know looked into how, um, you know, factored in some of those risk factors, and they've actually identified that independent of socioeconomic status, 
and pre-existing mental health issues, a poor diet or your typical kind of Western diet of refined oils and refined sugars and refined carbohydrates seems to exacerbate mental health problems. Um, so a really interesting study was done over four years into the impact of um, an unhealthy eating pattern versus a healthy eating pattern. So the unhealthy eating pattern is, as you would imagine, lots of junk food, processed meat, salty food, oily food, sugary food. What they observed was that there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is a little seahorse-shaped part of the brain and it's associated with learning, memory, and regulating mood. And we know that in people with depression and in other mental health issues, the hippocampus starts to shrink in volume, and that shrinkage is associated with a worsening of symptoms as well. And what they did in this four-year study was that they observed that people who had a, a diet that was um, for every increase in bad food that they were eating, sugary food in particular, but also, um, you know, added oils and, and takeaway meals, there was a corresponding shrinkage in hippocampal volume. So the, the part of the brain actually began to shrink with increases in junk food consumption. Um, on the flip side of that, things like exercise and um, a diet high in polyphenols and antioxidants, so large intake of fruits and vegetables, was shown to increase growth of new cells in the hippocampus. Um, so here we have a mechanistic action on how that might impact things like depression, is that we know that with depression the hippocampus starts to shrink. We know that antidepressant medication works in part by increasing growth of cells in the hippocampus, and that corresponds with symptom improvement. And here we have a study showing that changes in diet over time are also reflected in the hippocampus. Um, so that was pretty fascinating to me when I found, found that out. That it's And it seems to be they're two independent factors. So a crappy diet will shrink your hippocampus, and a good diet will help it to grow or help it to repair um, but one doesn't cancel the other out, they found. You do need sort of a consistent healthy diet for that hippocampus to stay healthy. Um, in rats, they even found that even short-term exposure to what they call a cafeteria diet, which <laughs> is basically where they give rats an all-you-can-eat buffet of sugar and fat, fatty foods as well as their usual rat chow, um, even after a short period of time, like a weekend of binging on that food, there's a shrinking of the hippocampus. Um and a deterioration in certain memory tasks as well. And I've certainly experienced that. And I know when, when you go through periods of eating really well, eating lots of fresh food, whole foods, and you suddenly have a weekend of eating really crappy food, you almost get a hangover from it. And that seems to be reflected in these animal studies, that there's actual changes going on in, in the brain because of those foods. It's not to say that we can never, ever have them, but it's just to say that there will be consequences. And for someone who has an existing serious mental health issue, um, that can be, you know, that could be more problematic. That could be enough to have a flare-up of their symptoms. Um, so I found that that pretty pretty fascinating. And, and the research had sort of teased apart all sorts of other influences like, you know, smoking and drug intake and socioeconomic status, and they still found this consistent link between shitty diet and poor brain function. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, as you say, it is or it's something that, you know, we've known for a very long time, but I think it's still really powerful to have that research because 
the developed world has essentially been in denial in regard to the problems that we have created because of our food supply. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it is, you know, in science we need that. We need that kind of hard evidence because that was a factor. They did sort of think for a long time, well, it could be that diet's affecting these people's mental health, but it could also be that their mental health is affecting their choices of food. But what they've found is that, indeed, that those foods have an independent risk for those things. It's not the only risk factor. Obviously, things like trauma and stress and genetics and stuff has a role to play, of course. But this is, you know, another piece of the puzzle that, that goes up to make, you know, mental health or mental illness. Um the most exciting thing, though, that has come out, I think, in the last um, six months was these researchers built on some of those studies and um, and they've actually developed an intervention trial where they gave a, a group of people with quite severe depression a dietary intervention group and then they had a separate, separate group who was given talking therapy, like a group therapy scenario, or basically a therapy which they knew would have some degree of effectiveness in depression to use as a control and they had pretty amazing results. So they based it around a, a trial in diabetes where they used a Mediterranean diet and for um, type 2 diabetes. And what the people found in this trial was there was a, an accidental decrease in the likelihood of depressive episodes in people who were in this group. So they were like, okay, well, why don't we try a Mediterranean-style diet as an intervention with regular um, weekly meetings with the dietitian who was trained to, you know, encourage the consumption of certain foods versus this control group who was, you know, sat around in a room talking through their feelings and stuff, which was, you know, also an effective therapy. And I think there was another group that had no intervention. Um, they, they did a little bit different to your typical politically correct Mediterranean diet, which was good to see. They added in more nuts because they know nuts are rich in a lot of mental health nutrients, things like magnesium and polyunsaturated fats and, you know, other minerals. And they also included a more moderate level of red meat consumption than what's typically advocated by the more conventional dietitians in, in a sense towards Mediterranean-style eating. So they had about three, I think, three serves a week of um, good quality red meats and that was to make sure they were getting adequate zinc and adequate iron and they actually measured blood parameters of those nutrients too. So participants were encouraged to have olive oil daily, vegetables at every meal, legumes twice a week, um, oily fish twice a week, so high in omega-3, which we know is linked to better mental health, um, bit of red meat twice a week, uh, no desserts. For desserts, they were to use fresh fruit, nuts or, or just some dried fruits. And they would eat a bit of unsweetened yogurt every day and some moderate intake of cheese, you know, feta-style cheese. And any um, carbohydrates would be whole grains, so whole grain breads and pastas, and a moderate amount of red wine, um, and definitely not to the point of getting drunk. Um, there was diet was about 30% fat, 30% protein, and 40% carb. People who have been into nutrition for a while will recognize those ratios as being the famous 90s zone diet. Um, and important in this trial is they didn't want people to lose weight because one of the side effects of weight loss is sometimes people get happier because they've lost weight. And they wanted to see that these people were actually, you know, changing their symptoms because of the actual dietary intervention. Massive improvements, quite amazing improvements. So they had a decrease in um, depressive symptoms that was equivalent to three times the effect observed with your typical antidepressants. And many of the participants were already on antidepressant therapy and had been for many years. So it was quite a 
profound effect compared to the control group. Um, and they saw other, you know, health changes as well, decreases in inflammation and whatnot. So the take-home message from that is if you are suffering from a mental health problem, getting a, you know, a whole foods-based diet like the Mediterranean diet, but I'm sure there'd be other dietary interventions that would have similar effects that maximize those, you know, antioxidant-rich vegetables, fiber-rich foods to feed your microbiome, omega-3-rich meats, um, seems to actually have a very profound effect, a stronger effect than medication even on your mental health. And I think that's just incredible because depression is not only awful in itself, it's also linked to a whole bunch of other diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So it doesn't just suck that you feel horrible and, and tired and depressed, but you're also at risk of certain diseases. And this dietary strategy not only alleviated symptoms of depression, but we know significantly can reduce your risk of you know cardiovascular disease and diabetes as well so i just think that's so exciting that we're at a time where we can say that unequivocally that you know these things are, are not just good for your health long term physically but you know we're, we're really seeing some good data to show that this is improving your mental health as well yeah absolutely what are your thoughts just um as a small side note around that dietary impact of controlling inflammation, which we're seeing as being, you know, quite a large contributing cause to conditions like those you've mentioned. Yes, yes. In fact, virtually all mental illnesses have corresponding increases in inflammatory markers in mm. the body and in the brain. So anything, there's, there's actually a large trial being currently done into the use of aspirin for depression, which is fascinating, but also as a, you know, nutritionist and naturopath i'm like but there's so many other things you can use to bring down inflammation slightly missing the point but <laughs> you know we'll end up with people with kidney failure and you know bleeding stomachs because of all the aspirin but they won't feel depressed um Turmeric's a good example. It's independently being studied as a treatment for depression in very very high doses but when you think of the synergy of combining an anti-inflammatory style diet rich in fruits and vegetables and polyphenols, adding in a bit of turmeric, adding in good quality sleep, adding in mindfulness. You're putting together all of these pieces of the puzzle that lead to better mental health. And I have no doubt that the synergy of all those ingredients would lead to much better outcomes than just focusing on individual isolated either supplements or drugs. Yeah. It's, it's it's sort of almost a no-brainer now that that would be the case in a complex condition such as depression, that it's more than just one piece of the puzzle that needs to fit in. You need to fit in all of those bits and pieces. Yeah, and it's fascinating the study that you mentioned about aspirin. I mean, I can't help but laugh. Obviously mm. a good step in the right direction, but clearly the pharmaceutical industry is not going to benefit from us eating a Mediterranean diet, right? So they're trying to stick their nose in still. Very good point. Very good. All the oil manufacturers might be happy though, but uh, yeah, true. <laughs> Amazing. So I wanted to talk to you about the topic of neuroplasticity. I'll get you to define this for us in a second. But I mean, I first came became interested in the topic when I had my own um, mental health challenges a long time ago. But I remember reading the the book the brain that changes itself back in 2010, I think. Um, so, you know, I find it a, such an amazing topic. So I really wanted to get your thoughts on this in relation to mental illness. So can you define for us what is neuroplasticity, pardon me, 
um, and how this relates to mental wellness. Sure, sure. So I think for a long period of time, it was thought that after we reach adulthood, our brain doesn't really change. In fact, it was thought we had a certain amount of neurons and they would slowly, you know, die off over time and that, you know, as we got older, we'd lose more brain function rather than gaining any brain function. For quite a while now, we've actually known that that's not true and that, in fact, learning anything new causes structural changes in the way that the brain is. So it's not just, you know, this sort of um, esoteric thing that changes in the brain that we don't understand. We can see on, on brain scans that the brain it's changes structurally in response to new challenges. Um, and parts of the brain will get thicker and um, and have more blood flow and more nerve activity, and other parts will sort of atrophy and kind of die off, I suppose, would be a, a, um, a blunt way of describing it. So neuroplasticity refers to this fact that our brain is able to change and repair to a degree in certain areas in particular. So we know that some of the areas associated with mental health, we've got areas like the hippocampus and also the amygdala. We think of the amygdala as being kind of the fight and flight center. It's the part of the brain that processes um, threat to a degree, amongst many other things. And we know that in um, chronic stress and anxiety and depression sometimes as well, the amygdala gets nice and big and juicy. It becomes a bit overactive and the hippocampus starts to shrink, as we were talking about before. And that correlates with symptom severity. Now, the interesting thing is that there's a whole bunch of different strategies we can implement in our day-to-day life that help reduce or reverse that effect. So nutrition is one thing that's been found to really help with you know growth of the hippocampus and avoiding refined crappy foods and eating more whole foods. But then the amygdala, we know that mindfulness and meditation can actually reduce the size of the amygdala and reduce the um, the overactivity of um, nerve links between the amygdala and the other parts of the brain. So it helps sort of dampen down that signal to the amygdala. The amygdala sort of calms down a bit. It's not as overactive. The hippocampus starts to grow again, and the hippocampus helps with emotional regulation and reducing symptoms of being overwhelmed and improving communication in the brain. Um, Exercise is another thing that's been found to enhance neuroplasticity. Deep sleep is also a really critical one, and it's something, you know, so many people these days are sleep-deprived or not kind of getting quality sleep, and sleep is really important for um, the release of certain factors. There's a thing called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and that's kind of like fertilizer for new brain growth. Um, That gets released in response to a bunch of different things, but we know high-intake of polyphenols helps with BDNF release, antidepressants help with BDNF release, Um, sleep does, exercise does, um, regular mindfulness practice does. The combination of exercise and mindfulness seems to do it even more. So again, we're seeing that holistic perspective being um, validated through science, that it takes a combination of approaches to um, restore health and um, harmony in the body. So, you know, exercise plus rest and relaxation plus a good quality diet plus sleep can have amazing it can change the structure of your brain like i think that's so mind-blowing to consider that in even six weeks of mindfulness practice people's brains can look different on a scan i just think that's amazing 
I want you to repeat that because I feel like we talk about meditation and mindfulness a lot, but even I myself can admit that I'm a little bit resistant. So can you say that mm. again, like about the, the just the last sentence there? Yeah, so just even six weeks of mindfulness training, so 30 minutes three times a week of mindfulness training has been found to actually change structures in the brain. So we see increases in activity in the prefrontal cortex which regulates um, uh, sort of higher functioning, sort of control of our, you know, control of our emotions, I guess, and our impulses and whatnot. And we see decreases in activation of the amygdala, which is the fight and flight center. Um, mindfulness, you'll see increases in gray matter in the hippocampus and decreases in gray matter in the amygdala. Um, you'll see um, there's been studies on people with post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma and um, there's been shown to be better activity of their executive control networks. So basically they are able to control their thoughts and feelings better or my preferred way of saying it, they're able to respond to them in a different way. So those flashbacks and traumatic memories are not having the negative impact on their life that they can be, you know, can be really debilitating in the case of PTSD. Um, even in normal people, people who haven't had any sort of serious mental health issues, you see increased gray matter in the anterior so ACC. I can't remember what that stands for now. Put it in my notes. <laughs> but that leads to better self-regulation and flexibility in thinking. So we're able to keep checking our emotions, not suppress them, but sort of just sit with them and be able to make better choices in response to those emotional reactions we're having. Um, the prefrontal cortex helps with things like planning, problem solving, and emotional regulation, regulation again, and as mentioned, the hippocampus as well. So actual structural changes occurring in the brain in response to mindfulness practice. It's, 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 this is, you know, demonstrated quite a number of times in the literature now, and there's been quite a lot of studies done into this in um, both people with existing mental health conditions and also with healthy people as well. It's... um. There's an enormous amount of research out there now. It's very exciting. Yeah, so fascinating. I absolutely love that concept. So everybody needs to commit to their meditation and mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And the thing is it's it's actually not, you know, to reach the levels of found in studies, it's sort of, you know, 30, 40 minutes, three times a week, which for some people that can be very daunting to yeah. begin with. But it's just like exercise or eating well. Break it down into small achievable chunks. Break it down into something that you can do on a day daily basis without um, without it taking up, you know, you know, causing you a lot of stress. The key with mindfulness is when you're doing it, it should be a reasonably pleasurable activity. It can be difficult. It is difficult to just bring your attention back to an object of focus, like the breath, which is the typical thing we focus on in meditation. Um, but bringing your mind back to that object of attention with um, gentleness and compassion engages different parts of the brain than if we bring on board our self-critic, like, oh, you should be focusing on the breath and can't you do this properly? And, you know, our, our inner critic kicks into gear very quickly and, oh, you got distracted again and this is such a simple thing and you can't even get that right. Notice those thoughts as they occur and let them be and gently bring your mind back to the object of awareness so back to breathing or back to a body scan and it's the action of bringing our focus back that brings the benefit in meditation 
So it's like exercising your meditation muscle. It's like doing a bicep curl for your brain. Every time your mind gets distracted and you bring it back gently to an object of focus, you're exercising that muscle. So the more times you get distracted, it's actually the more beneficial because you've got more opportunities in that moment to exercise that muscle again. And I often say that to people, oh, I can't meditate, my thoughts just go everywhere. And I'm like, well, you're the perfect person to get the benefit oh, of yeah. it. <laughs> and I guarantee you the people I've spoken to will say, oh, I didn't have any thoughts during that meditation. I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you, but you probably were so caught up in thoughts that you didn't even notice that you were thinking. And so often we're like that. We're so caught up in this wandering mind. And that, that brings me to another point. There was a really interesting study where they set up an app on people's phone and it just prompted them with a question of at random points in the day, and this was done on thousands of people, are you focused on the task you're doing? And then there was another question about their levels of happiness and contentment. And they found consistently a very strong correlation. Whenever someone's mind was wandering elsewhere, and it didn't matter whether it was on fantasizing about an overseas trip or worrying about where the kids are, the more consistent you weren't focused on your present activity, even if that was something boring like doing the ironing or washing the dishes, that correlated more strongly with unhappiness and depression, symptoms of depression. So that wandering mind, that mind that's constantly going everywhere except for what we're focusing on right now, whatever the case may be, that's the thing that seems to cause people a lot of the problems in life so that lead to things like depression and anxiety, but also just general unhappiness and, and discontent. And mindfulness is training us to just notice that wandering mind, notice where it goes, and gently bring the attention back to an object of focus. So you can practice mindfulness anywhere. It doesn't have to be sitting in a meditation pose, although there's benefits to that, but we won't go into that here. But it can be just having a cup of tea and focusing on the experience of having a cup of tea, the weight of the teacup in your hand, the warmth of the, the liquid, the aroma of the tea, the sensation of the tea in your tongue, engaging with that present experience. And the more you do that, that seems to correlate with greater degrees of happiness in life and better emotional regulation. So it's, yeah, fascinating stuff. I'm a bit obsessed with it at the moment. <laughs> oh, no, but it is. It's so amazing. And it's, it is about taking control. I think, you know, the strategies that we've been discussing so far are, are very much available to everybody, which is, you know, the good news. It's about recognising that the sum total of those choices and behaviours can make all the difference to your mental wellness. Absolutely, yeah. One other last thing that gets some people excited about meditation that otherwise have no interest in it, including some family members I've men mentioned it to, there's been some recent studies that have found that meditation increases telomerase activity. Now, what the hell does that mean? Basically, tel telomerases promote the stability of chromosomes and prevent their deterioration. And what that means, basically, is it reduces the aging process yeah. in the body. So meditation has an anti-aging effect and that same process also may help reduce risk of cancer too because, you know, disruptions of that process can be linked to cancer as well. So, you know, it's anti-aging, it changes the structure of your brain, it leads to more happiness. You know, there's so many things going for it. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Fascinating area. So one of the um, other sort of hot topics right now um, are float tanks. So I wanted to talk to you more about your experience here in relation to mental wellness um, and what the evidence says at this point in time. Sure. Yeah, well, I'd always been interested in them ever since I was a little kid. I'd heard about them and I was like, what a fascinating and weird thing to do, you know, to well, lay. Know, by the way. Yeah, those that don't know. <laughs> a flotation tank or a sensory deprivation tank, although I think most people prefer the name flotation tank, um, is basically a, a tank you lie in. It's sort of like a pod. The water is at body temperature, so it's a very pleasant temperature, not too warm, not too cool. You can't sort of feel it. You're floating in a huge amount of Epsom salt, so you're actually um, kind of like the Dead Sea. You're sort of floating almost above the waterline, like you, you feel like you're in sort of a state of no gravity, and you're cut off from light and sound, although I would suggest on your first try maybe keeping the lid open a little bit if you're claustrophobic or prone to anxiety or neuroses like I am. Um and essentially, it's sort of cutting off kind of outside activity, um, so any sort of sensation and whatnot. And I guess the thing about it is, is that it's supposed to induce these deep states of relaxation, and some people have these kind of almost out-of-body spiritual experiences. I was initially kind of sceptical. I was kind of like, well, it just sounds like an expensive way to have a lay down. <laughs> um, but doing some research uh, i looked into some things and one of the interesting things that i've looked into is the impact of silence on brain health so we live our our background noise is higher than it's ever been in history with technology with cars with computers with whatever there's always this background level of noise and there's been some interesting studies in mice where they basically were trying to see if um music would have an impact on mice's brain development and so they gave mice different types of music and stuff. And the control group of mice were given two hours of silence a day. So they were supposed to be the control group where nothing happened. The funny thing was two hours of silence a day led to an increase of growth in the hippocampus in these mice. So the control group were the ones who actually got the benefit out of it. Um, they've also found that even small levels of background noise can increase cortisol quite significantly. And the amount of noise in a typical emergency room inhibits the healing process wow. massively. So one thing that, that these float tanks have going for it is a period of complete silence, which is so rare and for sometimes it can actually feel a little disturbing. So some of the, um, I think, the evidence for it probably comes from that period of silence. It's something we don't get to experience. Another thing I looked into was specific studies on float tanks. There's not a huge amount of data out there, but it's an interesting study anyway. In um, If you're doing a search for it on, on PubMed or anything, it's actually called Restricted Environmental Stimulation Technique or REST is the other name for it. They've always got to give it some wanky kind of name. <laughs> um, uh, just looking at some of these sorts of um, studies here, I've got some notes. So float subjects in one study on 27 people had a 21% 21 de decrease in overall plasma cortisol and a 50% reduction in, plasma, uh, in cortisol variability. So what this basically pointed to was people who were um, had five weeks of flotation sessions and a control group were told to rest in a chair in a quiet room. So they were still somewhere quiet, they were still resting, but the actual floating group had a 21% decrease in cortisol. Now that's 
Very important. Anyone who sort of knows a bit about the impact of stress hormone knows that cortisol is one of the big players. It's part of the thing that damages the brain in the case of depression and anxiety. It leads to, you know, poor immunity. It leads to inflammatory issues. It can lead to muscle loss. So that decrease on a, on a hormonal level, I thought was quite fascinating. Um, another study which would be interesting to athletes is they got um, rifle, you know, uh, what do you call them? People who use rifles olympically or whatever. Sports shooters. Uh, shooters, that's the word. Um, they gave them um, uh, a period in a flotation tank versus just a, a guided imagery exercise. So we know a lot of athletes actually use guided imagery to enhance their performance, to increase their focus. Um and they actually found an improvement in performance in the rifle group who were given the flow tanks, which is pretty fascinating. Um, other studies have found decreases in stress, pain, anxiety, and improvements in optimism and sleep quality. Um, and the mindfulness in day-to-day life actually improved. So greater mindfulness equals less wandering mind equals less uh, greater happiness. So, yeah, it's been interesting to see that there actually has been um, some studies finding some benefits. Another study looked at uh, um, men who were given eccentric contraction or contractions of exercises, so 50 reps where they did eccentric contractions, which if anyone's done eccentric kind of weight training, the, you know, the, the, the down weight, um, you get massive amounts of um, lactate building up and your muscles really kill from it. One, and a one-hour float tank versus sitting in a chair for an hour had significant reductions in plasma lactate and also in pain. So it's improving recovery, essentially. So I thought that was pretty fascinating as well. Um, so because of that, I decided to give him a go and um, yeah, had some of my own experiences. So we're, one of the places I work, we have some float tanks upstairs at the Orchard in Paran. And um, yeah, very interesting experiences. Um, it was good to do at the same time I'm doing an eight-week mindfulness training course with the clinic I work at at Merge um, Merge Health in Surrey Hills, and um, I started practicing some of my meditation in the float tank, and I think that enhanced the experience because one of the goals of meditation is to um, become more aware of the thoughts and feelings and sensations that are going on in our mind. And you'd think that when you're in a flotation tank that you'd have less distractions, but you're actually left with the ultimate distraction, which is your is your mind, your storytelling mind that's constantly seeking stimulation, that's constantly creating explanations, it's constantly on the lookout for threat. So I found being in there, I actually realized even more how noisy my head was. Mm. But the benefit of that was I could also then implement some of these mindfulness strategies of focusing back in on the breath or engaging in, you know, the sensory experience of, you know, noticing subtle sensations in my body and actually had um, quite profound effects. The first session, I've got to admit, I felt very anxious and claustrophobic. I did it in the middle of the day at, at work, and it was just not a good time to do it. And I think just that first time of being in this total sensory deprivation, I'm a person who's had a history of anxiety, used to suffer from panic attacks. I also had depression in the past. So it was a bit of a full-on experience. The second time, however, I noticed big improvements um, did it at the end of the day, did some meditation while I was in there. And the interesting thing I noticed at the end was how acute my senses became afterwards. I had a shower and just every droplet of water from the shower I could notice on my skin. So it sort of, it did seem to increase that 
mindfulness of the present moment, of those sensory experiences that we just tune out to. Even walking down the stairs afterwards, I could kind of feel um, the steps differently. So, yeah, it was kind of fascinating to sort of see some of those effects that I'd heard about. You know, you hear some bloggers and podcasters talking about float tank experiences. And, um, yeah, it was funny to actually experience that myself. Yeah, I love I love the conversation around silence because I, I get a lot of resistance from clients of mine. It's similar to what you get, you know, oh, no, I can't meditate. I can't sit still, my brain doesn't shut off. And the irony is that we're the ones that need it the most, obviously, as you said. And so the acknowledgement that putting yourself in a position where that's obviously all you can hear can Mm -hmm. really show you how much you have constant chatter, but on, on the flip side, how much more important it is for you to take control back over those thoughts. Exactly, exactly. And to just sort of, you know, recognize that that constant noise is there within your head and how to get a better grip of that. And I think, you know, for people who are really struggling with that, doing a mindfulness or meditation course can be really useful because there, it is meditation not relaxation. Relaxation can be a, a nice side effect of meditation, but relaxation uh, meditation is actually training the um, you know our awareness, training our awareness to be more focused, training you know for greater clarity. And it's a skill, and just like any skill, it's sometimes helpful to do that either with a practitioner. So myself, I work a lot with my patients. I'm a counselor and naturopath. I will work with them on breathing exercises and body scan exercises, and then they can actually talk about their experience and have it normalized, you know, when they realize that, oh, it's quite normal for our mind to wander all the time. And, you know, you're not crap at meditation. I always say to people, if you can think and breathe, then you can meditate. You know, they've taught meditation to little kids in in primary school right through to senior citizens in nursing homes. So it's as long as you're able to be aware of your thoughts and you're able to notice your breath and you're able to shift back between one or the other, then you're doing meditation. And it's the discipline sort of regular practice of that that really um, seems to bring home the benefits. Yeah, and don't you think it's the awareness that everyone has those thoughts? Like I honestly think that some people walk around thinking that they're the only ones that have a chattery mind? Absolutely, Mm. absolutely. I think um, one of the modalities I'm trained in as a counsellor is acceptance and commitment therapy. And in that particular modality, they talk a lot about how we, we all have these thoughts going through our head. And sometimes you can't push them away, you can't challenge them. Maybe the thoughts are very real. But the thing to always ask yourself is as you notice those thoughts coming up, those negative thoughts of, I'm not good enough, you know, is anyone going to listen to me and all of that sort of thing, is to just ask yourself, is this thought helping me right now? Is this thought useful right now? And then we can use mindfulness to engage with the thought if it's useful. You know, maybe that thought's getting you motivated and focused and it's causing you to take action. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's just rumination and worry. Maybe it's just beating yourself up for no good reason. And then we can use some mindfulness skills to take a little step back and just notice that thought and notice it for what it is. It's just a thought. It's just a transient phenomena in our consciousness. It doesn't have to be listened to. It doesn't have to be acted on. And once we get that breathing space from our thoughts and our feelings and sensations, it really changes the way we respond to them and can really open up a lot more freedom in the way we live our life and reduce some of the impact of that on our mental health as well. 
Yeah, I absolutely love that. So the last topic I wanted to touch on, you mentioned turmeric before, and that's obviously or it can be consumed in whole food form, but we also yes. see it in a supplement form. Yeah. Do, do supplements help with mental illness? And could you share with us what they are, if so? Yeah, definitely. So another um, presenter I saw at that talk I mentioned earlier was Professor Julia Rucklidge, and she's done some amazing work into nutrient supplements and and mental health. And she was quite sceptical to begin with. I think she was a psychologist and and really didn't see much value in doing it, but um, was doing it for some research project, and that's how she got into it and was blown away by some of the effects. Now, I think we've spoken about this on the show before, we don't eat individual nutrients, mm. we eat food, and food comes as a team of different nutrients. And the research seems to show that combination nutrient therapy, so using like a multi-nutrient approach, works better in the case of mental health and using nutrients in isolation. So some studies show zinc help with depression, some don't. Some studies show omega-3s help with depression, some don't. But when these combination studies have been used, especially in the case of you know diet as well, there seems to be quite big results. So for example, um, she did some interesting research. She was in New Zealand at the time of the big earthquakes, and they did a comparison study where they gave people very high doses of combination nutrients, in particular your B group vitamins that are important for methylation and things like zinc and magnesium, which are also implicated in mental health. So high doses of those around the sort of um, top end of the recommended daily safe limit. Then they had a control group who had talk therapy. So they went and saw counsellors basically, which is pretty standard. You know, there's a big trauma, earthquake, people go see counsellors and work through, you know, all the things that have happened. Um, The nutrient group had much, much lower levels of post-traumatic stress disorder at the end of the study. Um, they They replicated this study as well in America after severe floods, gave one group a whole bunch of nutrients and the other group had um, counselling. And again, the group given the nutrients received, um, uh, experienced less post-traumatic stress afterwards. So it's pretty amazing, amazing stuff. I guess the, the take-home summary from that is is that I don't think there's going to be any one nutrient that's going to help you. Mm. It's important to see you know, a qualified nutritionist or naturopath or someone with a, a bit of a special interest in, in um, nutritional health, work out what maybe you're low in and also what might work out better for you. So at Merge Health, where I work, we often do an oligoscan, which is a non-invasive test of um, mineral levels and heavy metal levels in the body. And that can help paint a picture of where the imbalances are that, you know, that might be helpful to you. Um, And often I find, you know, people with things like anxiety and stuff, often their magnesium levels are really low, their zinc levels are really low. Sometimes their copper levels are really high or other heavy metals like mercury and stuff are high. And there's different ways we can then um, work out strategies to restore the balance of those minerals and then we get corresponding better improvements in mental health. But if I had to say some of the key ones, and certainly the key ones I've seen a lot of research for in mental health, zinc, your B-complex, especially your, your activated B groups like your methylfolate and um, methylcobalamin form of B12, magnesium, um, long-chain omega-3s, so your fish oils, and um, prebiotic fibres, so fibres that feed the good gut bacteria, and polyphenols, so your brightly coloured pigments and um, flavonoids and stuff in fruits and vegetables. All of those seem to have a body of research to support improvements in mental health when used as an intervention. And I would suggest that if you use them as a combination approach with lifestyle 
um, sleep, meditation, etc., you'll see massive improvements. That's certainly been the case for me. You know, years ago when I was studying to be a naturopath, I was vegan. Um, I wasn't sleeping very well. I suffered from such extreme panic attacks that I thought I was experiencing psychosis at one point. Um, I got depersonalization disorder where I thought I was outside of my body when I should have been in it. And once I started making some dietary changes to begin with, increasing protein and eventually adding back in meat, I noticed an immediate improvement in anxiety levels. And then when I started using um, mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy, I've not had a panic attack since. So a complete mm-hmm. reversal of what's considered, you know, often a long-standing um, disorder, panic disorder. Sure, I still get anxiety. That's sort of part of, you know, I think who I am. However, I'm much better at managing it now by making sure, A, that I've got a nutrient-dense diet, that I'm getting sleep, and then I'm practicing um, mindfulness daily. And that seems to have made an enormous difference to my own mental health and certainly a lot of the patients I've worked with as well. I've seen big transformations in their stress levels, in their anxiety levels, depression, panic, etc. And we're even seeing some nutrients, things like N-acetylcysteine and inositol and whatnot, in more severe kind of conditions like bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder. In fact, um, Professor Rucklidge, her group has um, used high-dose nutrient therapy and gotten great results for um, bipolar disorder as well. So um, I think we're at the, the real kind of crossroads where the impact of nutrition and lifestyle and mental health is really being taken seriously. We've moved on from just mental illness being an unconscious kind of Freudian type thing, then it was the neurotransmitter imbalance. Now we're realizing that mental illness is a whole body phenomena. It's part of, you know, our bodies and how our bodies relate to the world. So through community, through meaning, through connection, um, all of that has an impact. And the the take-home message from that, the benefit from that is that there are so many angles we can tackle these problems with. So if medication's not working for you, it's not the end of the world. There is other strategies you can implement. If, you know, nutrients aren't working for you, you know, maybe you need to use it in combination with other things. So um, I think it's a very exciting time and exciting time for people who are suffering with um, mental illness. And it's a huge burden. Like it's a huge thing that, um, you know, it's the number one cause of disability in the industrialized world these days is actual mental illness. Um, and that's, I think, you know, we're talking about it more and more, but it's still there's more work to be done in raising that awareness and raising the awareness that it's treatable, that some of these conditions are reversible. Some of these conditions are, if not reversible, at least manageable in a much better way than what we have been in the past. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's been, you know, a long time of looking only at the pharmaceutical route. And then, as we've been discussing in recent years, we're coming around to look at what is more holistic, which is just so amazing. And it must be, you know, for those suffering, finally, you know, I guess, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, if particularly medication hasn't worked in the past. Yes. And often it does, you know, sometimes it's good at controlling those extreme symptoms. And it's similar to medication for chronic health problems. Like it might stop you from reaching an emergency point of ending up hospitalized with depression or, um, you know, suicidal ideation and whatnot. But it doesn't necessarily translate to a really big improvement in quality of life. And that's where some of these other lifestyle factors seem to be having their big benefit is irrespective of what they're doing to the symptoms, they're improving quality of life in all sorts of other ways. So I think they're worth a try regardless of the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Most of them are absolutely free and in your own hands. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's been so fascinating. I've loved exploring this topic with you, Dad. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and, of course, your personal stories. We're very grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Steph. It's always a pleasure and um, I've loved being here as well. Thank you. Awesome. We'll chat to you again really soon. Thanks, Steph. Bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.